Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. It's a pleasure to see so many come out to Sackbayet again, to the best deal in town as far as I'm concerned and to take part in this vital discussion on energy in our society. I'm the moderator today. My name is Klaus Jericho. And to compile the information sheet, which incidentally are very difficult to write. I think I contributed two or three words to it. <laughs> um, just for you for housekeeping notes, uh, I have to go through. Please turn your cell phones off. We thank the following. We thank the University of Lesbridge for their contribution. We thank Shaw for their transmission of this information to the public. We thank catering, um, country catering uh, service. Uh, who else is there? Uh, and the Lesbridge Herald for contributing uh, vitally in this communication process. Um, the title, I want to make this as short as possible because if we have two speakers for you today, so I want to give them as much time as possible. But the title today is Climate and Energy. Does Canada need an energy strategy? And I can't think of anything more important to discuss than this. This has to be an ongoing process of communication and discussion in this province in particular and in the country. So we are very fortunate to have yet the third contribution of the subject by that Satva in the last two or three weeks. And we don't apologize for that at all. Uh, so the first speaker, I will call him uh, Dr. Professor Kent Peacock from our university up the hill, and he is in philosophy. And um, that's what philosophers do. They look out the window and they do some thinking. They take time out. They take time out to think. Because most of us don't do that anymore. So we really need these people who do some thinking. And he, he has been very interested in, um, in professional ethics, environmental issues, and foundations of physics, which drove him into the interest of energy because energy drives everything we do. The food you eat, how you came here, where you go on holiday, it is all energy. So we better know what we are talking about. So without any further ado, I'll call on Professor Kent Peacock to review the state of affairs in our society today with respect to energy. Thanks very much. Um, everybody hear me okay? Good? Okay, thanks. Um, so they say that when you're going to give a talk on a very serious subject, you should start with a joke. So here's a joke I heard, which I heard first from Henry before. It's a peak oil joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Does anybody know this? Because there were no cars. <laughs> now, to the, now to the serious part. Um, as Klaus uh, said, I'm a philosopher of science with strong interest in environment, energy, and sustainability. As a philosopher, it's, it's actually my job to see the big picture or to try to see the forest for the trees, as they say, and to find connections between apparently unrelated subjects. 
So here for me is the biggest question of our time. Can humanity, all seven plus billion of us, with our complex technology continue to survive on this earth, not only in the manner to which we have become accustomed, but at all? <clears throat> History shows that most complex societies in the past eventually collapsed, often rapidly. This was usually due to some sort of ecological bottleneck or failure of physical resources, which in turn translated into a failure of energy supply. It is simple physics. No complex living system, such as a human society, can survive without an abundant flow of energy. The better the flow of energy, the larger and more complex the society can be. Conversely, if the energy supply dries up, a society can no longer support its complexity and it will collapse, often catastrophically. Ancient Rome is the classical example, so to speak, of this phenomenon. Humanity is approaching an ecological bottleneck now, and it is our hunger for energy that has gotten us into this trouble. A few hundred years ago, we learned how to tap into fossil fuels, coal first, then oil and natural gas. This has brought us great prosperity and put human footprints on the moon. Fossil fuels have been very good to us. They have given us a hint of what it would be like, or what it would be like to be able to overcome the physical limitations that define the struggle for existence for all forms of life. But right now, we have two huge problems stemming from our dependence on fossil fuels. First, carbon dioxide emissions from our use of fossil fuels by causing global warming and oceanic acidification are threatening to destabilize the relatively benign environment in which modern societies evolved since the last ice age. Second, we are rapidly running out of the most energetically faithful supplies of fossil fuels. First, let's talk about climate change. How bad is it really? <clears throat> You've had people in this room who have tried to tell you that human-caused global warming is not yet proven, or that it's a scientific mistake, or maybe even a hoax foisted by left-wing scientists trying to take over the world. I can't wait. But... Uh, Richard Alley, one of the world's leading climatologists, repeatedly emphasized, hey, I'm a Republican. Anyway, the people who say these things are deeply and dangerously wrong. I'm not a climate expert myself, but I'm pretty scientifically literate, and I follow this literature and the issue very closely for many years. As a philosopher of science, a part of my expertise is supposed to be, in fact, a certain ability to tell who the experts really are. A few weeks ago, I was at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. James Hansen and several other top climate scientists. The folks I met at the EGU are the real experts. They really do know what they're talking about, and they're very, very worried. For instance, I had a conversation with a young scientist named Dr. Jason Box. He spent over a year of his life on the Greenland ice cap, measuring its behavior, watching it melt away before his eyes. I can assure you that Dr. Box knows what he's talking about. Here's what the scientists, virtually all the scientists who work on climate and related fields are saying. We have five or ten years to reduce CO2 emissions by 80%. If we do not do this that, in that sort of time frame, by the end of this century, we'll be living on a different planet. A different planet than the one we evolved on and one we will not like very much at all. The most obvious consequence of our failure to meet that reduction target will be rapid and possibly catastrophic sea level rise. Current estimates indicate that if we continue with business as usual, sea level will almost certainly be about a half a meter to a meter higher than it is now by the end of this century. But there will be other consequences as well. I'm telling you flatly, there is no confident Earth scientist today who has any major disagreement with this broad picture. What there is still uncertainty about at the professional level is how rapidly the changes are going to occur. There is strong evidence from paleoclimate studies that continental ice sheets can undergo episodes of the catastrophic collapse raising sea level by a meter or more almost overnight. 
There is also strong evidence that several kinds of positive feedbacks are now operating that tend to increase the rate of melting and thereby increase the risk of ice sheet collapse. But what the experts still don't know is the timetable. It is difficult to predict catastrophes. For instance, you can know that you live in an earthquake zone, but you're still unable to predict precisely when the next one will hit. Now, the second problem is fossil fuel depletion. And there's only so much of it in the, in the crust of the planet, and we've already depleted the larger part of the really good stuff. Yes, I know there's still billions of barrels left in the tar sands, the oil shales, and under the continental shelf. I know that fracking for oil and natural gas has enabled us to get at reserves that were previously untappable. But these techniques only buy a little time, a few more years. It is utterly obvious that there can be no such thing as a long-term future for an energy-intensive, global-scale society that gets most of its energy from tapping into a one-time-only supply of biotic waste products laid down in the strata millions of years ago. That should be obvious. Now, there is a very important parameter that measures the usefulness of a means of energy production, EROI, Energy Return on Energy Investment. This concept reflects the fact that in order to produce or generate useful energy, you have to expend some energy to do it. The meaning of EROI is very simple. If I can get 50 barrels of oil out of my oil well, for every barrel of oil I have to expend in the process, I've achieved an EROI of 50. What kind of EROI do you need to run a civilization? Well, evidence is the ancient Romans ran a very sophisticated society for centuries on an EROI of around 20 or so, maybe a little better at times. Of course, they got this energy in the last analysis from the sun, transduced by forests and farmland and food for their slaves, soldiers, and draft animals. Now, in the good old days, not so long ago, a shallow deposit of sweet-like crude would get a Leroy of around 100, perhaps even better on occasion. On that much net energy, you can run a society that puts astronauts on the moon. But these days, the Leroy of conventional oil is drift, has drifted down. I've seen estimates around 40 or so, maybe less. Because most remaining deposits are deeper, they're harder to get out of the ground, or they require more processing. As world population and thereby world energy demand steadily increases, and as the EROI of our energy sources drifts downward, we have to work harder and harder to stand in the same place. Now, does anybody want to guess what the EROI of the tar sands is? Well, depending on the extraction method they use, it's about 1.5 to 6. This is pathetic. It's laughable. The Romans did far better by growing alfalfa. So why do we bother with the tar sands at all? Well, the other crucial parameter that measures the value of an energy source is something loosely called quality, which is a measure of how concentrated and portable it is and how easy it is to handle. We know of nothing that can match liquid hydrocarbons for quality. So gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, these are the lifeblood of our mobile economy. So the real reason that we're spending tens of billions plundering our boreal lands for bitumen is not because it yields all that much net energy. The tar sands are nearly a net loss so far as energy production is concerned, even if you don't take into account the environmental destruction. It's because it's the only way we can think of right now to produce the vast quantities of liquid fuels that we need to keep the wheels turning. To me, this is simply a failure of technological imagination. So even if climate change were not a problem at all, the way we fuel our complex global society now cannot possibly go on much longer. Something's got to give. We have to produce the energy we need in very different ways, and we have to do this rather soon. I'll make two final quick points. First, there is not nearly enough investment, in my opinion, in the research and development of alternative energy sources or in methods of using the energy we do have now in more efficient ways. Worldwide, humanity should have teams of science and engineers studying everything conceivable from windmills to nuclear fusion. 
We should be spending tens of billions on R&D and alternative energy sources and increasing efficiency, but we are not. R&D into the mitigation of climate change and alternative energy sources should be one of the highest priorities of every government in the world, not an amusing sideline that could be pursued if we have a little spare change left over after subsidizing the oil companies. By the way, there should also be an international effort, perhaps spearheaded by the UN, to plant a tree everywhere that a tree can be planted. That's something we already know how to do. No advanced R&D is needed for reforestation. Now, what are the implications of this picture for Alberta? As Andrew Nikiforek explained here last week, better than I can, the Alberta economy is almost a one-trick pony, dangerously dependent on trickle-down from the profits of the oil and gas industry. We must diversify. We must invest far more than we do now in education and research. We must become a center of energy innovation. What if we don't? Well, as the old joke goes, prediction is difficult, especially when it's about the future. Uh, but I dared predict that the tar sands will be obsolete long before they are depleted. It is estimated that the bitumen could last 40 to 60 years at present rates of, of extraction. However, I think the tar sands project will be shut down not 40 or 60 years from now, but much sooner, not only because of climate change, but also because somewhere in the world, new methods of energy generation and transduction are going to be created that will render fossil fuels, particularly things like tar sands, obsolete. That is far more likely to happen in South Korea, Japan, Europe, or India than here. Such countries don't have the luxury of large oil deposits within their own borders, but they do have lots of smart, well-educated people who will probably not wait politely for us to solve the problem for them. I'm tempted to say that Albertans will go back to being hewers of wood and drawers of water, except that before too long, we won't have much of our own forest or fresh water left either, not to mention our natural gas. As the, coast, as the coastal regions of the world go under the waves, Alberta will be left behind in the dust kicked up by those who realize that the era of fossil fuels is over. Thanks. Thank you, Kent, for this quick review of the state of our society in relation to energy. Uh, we now call upon Cosmos Rodzinos to tell us what we should do about this. Cosmos has uh, a lifetime of experience in converting energy into electrical energy, nationally and internationally. So he is very, very much involved in this issue of energy provision for our energy-hungry society. Cosmos, please. <coughs> Massive size of our energy infrastructure, 
I would be happy if in eight to ten years we have developed sufficient plans and R&D so we can start implementing these engines. Then you can appreciate that after implementation starts, will take us another 30 or more years to fully implement it. It is so big, our infrastructure, we don't have all the resources to do it overnight. Now, we're, we are lucky here in Canada that we have the oil sands, or tar sands, and uh, at least we have the energy to power that change, because we need energy to build plants, to mine, uh, methods and so forth. So we have at least that other countries they don't, so they go faster ahead of us. Now, in Canada, we don't have what we need to achieve all this change. We need to have a guideline that will sort of guide us through the steps. But first, some thinkers have to sit down and develop a guideline that what do we do, how do we do it? And that's what they call a unified energy strategy. In Canada, we don't have such a thing that would be applicable all across the provinces of the territories. And Dr. Peacock, as he said, it is a development energy of alternative energies is imperative, and I fully agree with that. The question is how? What is the first step that we have to do? That's the first question that we need to ask. What is the first step that we've got to do that will start in order to identify and tackle the various problems? I believe that the first item on agenda should include, first one, total transparency of all energy issues, and stop all the skillfully distributed misinformation to the public. Now, that is about the media in everything we have mechanism that it sort of confuses everybody. When this is done then, and we have well-informed public, then we can begin the healthy thinking of developing the alternatives in step-by-step step and implement them. Implement them not based on feelings, not based on ideologies, not based on political correctness, but in actual, physical, scientific facts. The current uncoordinated state of affairs has allowed several special interest groups in our society to hijack energy-related issues for their own short-term purpose. They spread misinformation and ideologies to the public, and then put pressure on the politicians to make decisions based on the opinion of misinformed voters. That's a cutthroat to start doing development and long-term planning when we have this kind of thing among us. It is worse than the worst pollution we could have. Taking action on based misinformation will lead us to nowhere. A unified, a unified energy strategy should include all stakeholders. However, as a start, it should guide our activities with regards to proving honest and complete information and keeping us all accountable for non-compliance. It should also return the energy decision-making process to those that they know, that is, out of the politics, out of ideologies, generalized opinion, and feelings of non-experts, and put them in the hands of qualified committees of engineers, economists, and environmental scientists that they have studied this type of thing. This also means that energy decisions will be basis to be done, to be made on the basis of facts, fact-finding, and detailed logical arguments, not 
in any other way. Let me explain to you something here. Energy-related issues on the surface appear very easy and straightforward. But in reality, we live in a complex society, and energy issues are multi-layered issues. There are several layers that control the, the, this topic. For example, an engineering factors of energy are useless without being considered along with associated economic factors, associated environmental factors, and all of them to be extrapolated in the future for conflicts with the current infrastructures and for efficiency. In the energy field, there is no such a thing, at least I don't believe there is, as one size fits all. We have several technologies, and all of them are should be on the table for every project and be evaluated. And be evaluated. What that means is, if we have a project A and we chose technology, one technology, that doesn't mean we can do the same technology project B, C, D, just because we like to. We have to go back and evaluate each and for every project what type of uh, layers are applicable and go through all these layers economy, engineering, environmental effects, extrapolation, and so forth, into the future, to see that. That means that, that for every decision we make, we have to have a minimum, a minimum of at least 40 different independent analysis for it, in order to be accurate scientifically. And that is, regardless of how accurate we are politically or ideologically, that's not concerning me. Because at the end of the day, we have to produce energy, concrete, breathing, energy-producing entities. Let me give you a couple of examples to see what I'm going driving through. Over the last 10 years, we have been inundated with marketers, and a thought process has been influenced not always for the better. For example, when I say Kleenex, you automatically think of a tissue. When I say renewables, you automatically think of solar panels and windmills. Let's think a bit further about that. If we examine it, we will see that, yes, the wind and the sun will be here today and tomorrow and the next day, more likely. But the solar panels and the windmills need to be replaced manually every 20 years. That's how long they last. So, similarly, geothermal heat, radiation, hydropower, will be also here tomorrow. But the plants that convert to electricity will need to be replaced every 30 to 60 years. Now, what do we mean by renewable energy then? Is it like the clinics? Have we been manipulated into thinking something that it is more favorable to one industry than it should be? We can't make decisions long-term on the basis of this manipulation. The same time marketing has, for example, used to us to make us believe that wind power is not only renewable, but also reliable, clean, sustainable. Yet, scientific facts, if you really get down to the integrated parts, none of it is true. Am I biased? As you like to, but what I see is that when there is no wind, then you can't have wind power. So how can you call it reliable? Then wind power cannot exist by itself on the grid because it is unstable. You try to have an unstable voltage to fit a fit a stable voltage, and it needs other power and technologies to compensate for it. Here in Alberta, we use the gas power plants. So that means that we, in order to exist wind in the grid, it needs a gas-fired turbine here in Alberta. 
And if you need a gas fire turbine, then wind power is dependent on gas. A gas is not, uh, uh, it is not totally, uh, uh, I lost my word, sustainable. If we use wind power by itself, without the turbines of work, in some other types of application, it could turn out to be a wonderful technology. But for that application we do, it is not. The burning of gas and the turbines produces CO2. And that makes the total system of the combined job cleaner than coal. But that is not clean. We still emit 50% of CO2 to the atmosphere as compared to coal. So what is clean? And this list can go on and on and on. But look, I'm concentrating here on marketing-based misinformation. And regardless of which energy technology we're examining, the issue is to understand the illusions that are created in our minds by a successful marketing and thoughtless repeat and development of ideologies. <laughs> We have several sources more of misinformation that uh, I can mention a couple when time allows. Uh, a well-known international green environmental group last year were ready to issue a video for the 25th anniversary of Chernobyl accident. It was filmed in Ukraine in 2011 and played the spooky music with an emotional narrative showing children deformed allegedly from Chernobyl radiation. When I challenged them, based on the pictures that I saw, these children were no longer than seven years old. And I said to them, just hold it. These children were born 18 years after Chernobyl by parents who had been 25 years evacuated from the dangerous areas. How can you do that? Well, you know, what did they do? They just shut the website down and they never saw the video. Well, okay. What do we had in this case? We had an ideology-driven misinformation attempted to fabricate facts. And I wonder, is this what we talk about freedom of information? Freedom of expression? Another example I draw from here, from the SACPA speaker that was sitting on this podium a few weeks ago, and it was urging us to go and to direct our actions in a certain way, when some gentleman got up and asked him, what about the economic implications of that issue? He says, I'm not an economist. The problem is that he was looking at his recommendation in a single layer, not of his own expertise. He was ignoring the other layers at issue. And the question again comes, what good is it to us to have someone giving us a partial information to our concern? We have other types of misinformation. A few years ago, an Alberta, and here it is an interesting one, an Alberta-based environmental institute that is perceived as an independent think tank published a paper describing a new grid system. That paper picked up, was picked up as a Bible by the local environmental groups because it was in line with their ideology. The paper did not consider the multi-layer nature of the topic, including engineering, nothing of this type of thing, but it was proposed in a certain grid system. Now, I, I tried to challenge them, but I was, was wasting my time. I mean, can you convince the Pope to become Protestant? <laughs> Later, later, the Institute did commit the typical marketing move. It made me very suspicious. They came and announced to Lethbridge, made contact with the city council, and convinced them to send a letter to the provincial government in favor of wind power. What did we have here was, again, the same typical marketing technique. First, the misinformation, 
and then the pressure of the politicians to accept the popular opinion of misinformed voters. My suspicions proved correct, because when the investigation finished, I came up that the that Alberta Institute had signed contracts with meal suppliers, with windmill suppliers, where they were getting paid a fee from the sale of every windmill sold, something like a sales commission. I don't know if this is an actual conflict of interest, but you cannot blame one from suspecting, questioning the independence of the think tank. There are many more examples to explain, but time is going and short, so I will sort of leave them maybe for the question period to, uh, to ask you a question. Now, here in Lethbridge, we have formed an energy collegium, which is total diverse expertise that tackles most of the layers. And that collegium is producing now a draft intended to go to the federal government, describing the need for a start of a unified energy strategy. That well, means it is not complete, even for the first stage. The federal government has the resources to complete it. This draft is informed to form a tipping point that will drive a change from theories fears and ideologies to actual specific scientific facts. You see, it's fine to be emotionally involved in the issues, but emotions should be backed by details, analysis, and consequences, scientific facts. Not should become the deciding factor, not political correctness, feelings, and emotions, and this type of thing. It has come the time to re-examine the real contribution of all those self-appointed protectors of our environment that also enjoy tax-free grants and government handouts. We don't want really to eliminate them because they can provide a very useful service to society. What we need to do is to educate them to use scientific facts and actual details and to abandon the ideologies. Once we have established all this and we have a healthy thinking among people, it will be time to finish with the research and development and for the energy technology. But thank you.